All right. Guys, it's fall in upstate New York. You know how I know that? There's a nor'easter coming. I ordered it specially for you. Happy Thanksgiving. It's going to fit, I promise. Just so, but in addition to being December 1st, in addition to being the opening of snowstorm season, which is like the best season of the whole world, um, we are also in the first week of our Advent celebrations. We've been working through the Gospel of Mark since September, and we're going to press pause for the month of December. And, has, and as has been our uh, tradition in our uh, church family over these last few years, we are going to begin um, just working through an Advent observation. So we're going to familiarize ourselves a little bit with that. I'm, I'm somebody who grew up in a church uh, that didn't practice a very traditional form of Advent celebration. And so it was all kind of new to me as I got older. Some of you, this is old hat, and you're like, Matt, you're a little bit late to the game. I know, that happens to me a lot. I'm okay with it. Um, my kids are okay with it. You can be okay with it too. But what, is, what does Advent mean? Advent, in, in the church sense, Advent is a time of preparation. As God's people, the church, look forward to the celebration of Christmas. In that sense, it's like the build-up. It's the lead-up to the main event. And the main event for us is the celebration of Christ's birth, the incarnation, God with us, Emmanuel. The word Advent comes from a Latin word that means arrival or coming. And Advent, then, serves for us as a season of reflection. As we think about and we ponder and anticipate the celebration of Christ's coming. Now, for many of us, Christmas is a sacred time. It's a holy observance of the birth of Jesus. But if you're like me and many of us, Christmas preparations, anxieties, and parties, and all of a sudden the burdens actually rob us of some of the joy of the season. It's it's not quite as simple as it used to be. And some of you remember an era of greater simplicity at this Christmas season. It's busied and hurried, and we're anxious and overwhelmed. And sometimes we just need to, we need to press pause a little bit and just come back down from that Christmas rush and settle into something a little more stable, something a little more real, something with a little more weight and substance. So our series from today to Christmas will be, di- will be designed to give us that, to give us that pause on a weekly basis, an anchor in our rhythm to allow our hearts to prepare for the real meaning of Christmas. So during the season, you'll see behind me the traditional themes. We're going to focus on hope, peace, joy, and love throughout the uh, season. We'll read and we'll hear Old Testament prophecies of the Messiah and his coming. We'll notice the excitement and fulfillment of those prophecies. However, even in the midst of our, our excitement, we, we intentionally embrace, as the church, attention between this celebration. Because we look back on the arrival of Jesus with joy, but we still find ourselves, like the song just said, with these longing and expectant hearts. Because Christ has come in flesh to save us from our sins, but he is yet coming again. And so in that way, we're stuck in between these two advents. And it's, it's a healthy tension. It's a good tension. It, it's the tension that marks the life of the disciple of Jesus. Standing on the firm foundation of fulfilled promises, looking for him to fulfill what's left to be done. These promises remind us that God in his grace has visited us in human form 
and is therefore ever-present in our lives today. And we're comforted then because our future belongs to God, the one who fulfills his promises, the one who will again be faithful to send his son at the second advent. And ultimately, our participation in this season should leave us with a longing and an anticipation for that arrival of Jesus. As part of the tradition, we are uh, going to light candles. Uh, We've been doing this for the last few years. And each candle stands for something. The first candle we light in the Advent season is called the prophet's candle. And we call it the prophet's candle because we, we recognize that that the arrival of Christ was not some sort of, I say it all the time, some cosmic plan B. It wasn't like an oops. There wasn't like an emergency meeting of the Trinity where they said, oh no, the world has fallen into sin. Anybody got some good ideas? Yeah, we'll go with that one. No, no, this was foretold before the foundations of the world. This was God's plan from the beginning to send his son to redeem mankind to reconcile to himself all things through the blood of his cross. It was his plan from the beginning, which is why Paul can say with such confidence that Christ was slain before the foundations of the world. This was his plan. But God did not leave us alone in the darkness trying to fumble around and discover his plan. If if he left us that way, we would never have found it. Instead, he revealed it and he foretold it through the law and the prophets. And hundreds of years, thousands of years before the arrival of Christ, he was already setting into motion and speaking these things. Look look at Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. You can turn there if you'd like. Isaiah 11, 1 through 6. Here's what he says. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with, the, with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall, lie, or shall dwell with the lamb. The leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And the little child shall lead them. Long before the advent of Jesus, long before he arrived at that first Christmas evening, God was speaking through Isaiah about this, this shoot rising up from the, the hewn, the cut down stump of Jesse. That the wicked would be broken by the power of his word. That righteousness would mark his reign and faithfulness. That justice for the poor and the oppressed would be the deciding factor of his kingship. And the effect of this king would, would be that he would usher in an era of unprecedented peace and tranquility. And, and the arrival of this new king would so completely upend the curse that a little child would be able to lead apex predators without fear of being harmed. St. Thomas Aquinas wrote this poem that I came across a number of years ago in one of my Advent devotionals. It goes like this. Light of lights, all gloom dispelling, thou didst come to make thy dwelling here within our world of sight. 
Lord, in pity and in power, thou didst in our darkest hour rend the clouds and show thy light. Praise to thee in earth and heaven, now and evermore be given, Christ, who art our sun and shield. Lord, for us thy life thou gavest, and those who trust in thee thou savest, and all thy mercy stands revealed. This morning, as we begin the season of remembering and preparing and readying, we're going to focus our minds and our hearts on this theme of hope. The sentiments of Christmas, especially our cultural ones, tend to focus on the meekness and the tenderness of Jesus. How sweet. Because who can be angry at baby Jesus, right? But the reality of the advent of Christ, the, the reality of the Messiah in his arrival is that the peace and quietness of the manger birth is not all that there is to this story, but a hope, a confidence, a trust that all the wrongs are being made right and a new kingdom is coming. So we're going to slow down. We're going to pause and rest in that. We're going to counterbalance all of the meekness and the mildness with the excitement and the joy of hope today. So I want to I offer a few thoughts on hope this morning. And it might be a little different than what I normally do, but it seemed appropriate as I was studying. The first thing I want to talk about today is just the nature and definition of the word hope. Because before we get too deep in, we should probably work to clarify our terms. Does that sound good? Uh, I like to do that when, um, when having good conversation. It's actually, it's one of the first things I do. Try to establish the rules. What are we trying to do? What does this stuff mean? Let's, let's make sure we're talking about the same thing. And the word hope is an interesting one for certain. Actually, the way, the way we've been trained to use it isn't very certain at all. The way that we've been trained culturally, the, the, the modern understanding of the word hope is kind of flimsy. It's kind of paltry. It's a word that seems to reflect almost a, a reckless or, or pie-in-the-sky irrational belief that something that is likely not to come true will actually come to pass. So we, th we say things like, I hope I'll be able to lose this holiday weight. Right? I don't know about you, but Thanksgiving was the, uh, the greatest pie day I've ever had in, in the land of Aegis. I'm still feasting on the goodness. I hope I'll be able to lose that holiday weight at some point. And what we mean by that is, it's probably not coming off. I was big before Thanksgiving. You know? I'm not going to blame Thanksgiving. Uh, but we, we hope, right? We say things like, I hope I can find a way to pass this test because what I really mean is I didn't actually study and I don't know what I'm doing, but maybe, just maybe, I'll be able to make it. Or I might say, I hope my stinking eagles can get healthy for one game and, and produce one quality win before they start rebuilding for next year. Something like that, right? The other day I was watching a documentary on um, the national parks, America's best idea. It was, it was one of the blessings of prime video, right? And and I was watching about Yosemite, and I thought, gosh. And I actually said this. I hope someday I'm able to go while I'm still healthy enough to hike to the top of Half Dome. I, I really do. I really want to get there. But I, I'm swimming in the shallow end of the gene pool. My family history is not good. So I hope that someday I get there while I still have a heart strong enough to carry me up to the top. Because I don't think they take helicopter rides up there. Right? We, and when we use that word, it almost betrays a heart of unbelief, doesn't it? When we say it that way, we say, we, what we mean is, there's no reasonable or rational way this is going to happen, but man, if it would, that'd be great. 
And in that sense, the word is relatively weak. And it doesn't bring a whole lot of confidence at all. It doesn't inspire us. It doesn't rally us. It doesn't draw us out of our doldrums and, and incite us with some kind of joy. How in the world can Paul say in Romans that hope doesn't disappoint? All those hopes I just listed, especially the ones about my eagles, they're sure to disappoint. They disappoint me all the time. What does he mean? How can he say that hope doesn't disappoint? Those things are almost certain to not work out. So here's one of those examples where the evolution of the English language has affected our understanding of Bible truth. When we talk about the hope we have in Christ or the hope revealed in the Bible or the hope that is within us, when Peter says, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you, he's not talking about a flimsy thing. He's not talking about a shaky thing. He's not talking about an unreasonable, irrational thing. The Erdman's Bible Dictionary describes hope this way confident expectation. The New Bible Dictionary says this, a belief in the living God who acts and intervenes in human life and who can be trusted to implement his promises. Trustful expectation, one writer said, particularly with reference to the fulfillment of God's promises, the anticipation of a favorable outcome under his guidance. It is that way that we use the word hope at Advent. It is that theme that I'm talking about this morning. It is that that will draw us out of our doldrums and our discouragement, our despair. That is something we can stand on. That's the kind of hope that we can rest in. So where does this hope come from? How is it that we, the people of God, who, who in our culture use the word hope so flimsily, where can we draw this hope from? Where is the well and the source and the spring? Because it's one thing to say we should think about hope differently. It's another thing to know why we should think about hope differently. The Lord has been testing my patience in a number of ways. I'm not the most patient person. Over the last eight to nine years or so, as I've been called in my home to help with math homework. Now I don't, let's just, here's a quick time out. My wife's not in the sermon, so please don't, she's not here today, she's serving somewhere. Please don't tell her I said this, All right? Here's the truth. I went to college for, for things like language arts and humanities, right? I was a social studies major, a history major. I do real, I make my living talking. I do good with words, right? Words and syntax, I do good reading. I, things like that is, is my sweet spot. Numbers and formulas and shapes overwhelm me, okay? I'm very, very, very bad at math. And, and in my home, because out of the two of us, I'm the more natural teacher of the two of us, I end up at the table pulling my hair out doing third grade math, right? So here's what happened. And this is not a statement about common core math or anything like that. I'm just saying, I, my daughter was in the first wave of the common core changes through the math curriculum. So I would sit down, I'm not even kidding, in third grade and realize that I didn't have what it takes. I, I have a master's degree. I I graduated from high school and college with honors, and I'm in a place where I would fail out of third grade math. That's basically, that is exactly the case, right? 
So I'm sitting down with her and we're doing a problem and she says, I don't know how to get the answer. And I know the answer, but I have no idea why that's the answer. I know how to explain it to me. I know how my parents explained it to me and their parents explained it to them and their parents explained it to them all the way back to the Apostle Paul, but I don't know how, I don't know how her teacher explains it to her, right? I know what it is. I know I'm supposed to think this way, but I don't know why. Sometimes it's easy to say to us, hope is supposed to be confident expectation. But why? Why is it supposed to be hope, confident expectation? And I think that the reason the church is able to think about hope differently has something to do with the fact that we stand at a unique place in the unfolding of the redemptive history of God. And this is where it gets really good. The reason that we can stand with confidence in the promises of God in the scriptures is because where we find ourselves in the long parade of God's revelation. If if human history were a football game, we're in like the final 30 seconds. If, If it were a parade, we're like the elves preparing the way for Santa Claus. He's right behind us. Right? If So much of the promises of God have been fulfilled in the rearview mirror that we, this church, in this generation, exists in a unique place in church history. And I hope to make a passionate case for that concept right now. Because we have the ability, thankfully, Mercifully to God because of a completed canon. We have the revelation of God, his will and wisdom in the word. We can look back and see his promises and then look back with the lens of human history and watch them be fulfilled. So we look back at almost everything. We look back at almost everything. You know where we are right now? If human history were the road trip of our lives... We are right now at the rest stop three miles from grandma's house when the kid says, I have to pee. But we're almost there. Can't you wait? It's been 14 hours in the car. Can't you just wait 10 more minutes, please? We're there. We're looking back at almost everything. So we look back at the pages of Scripture and we see in creation the power of a God who is able to bring the world into existence By his spoken word. We watch him create man and woman in his image. We see him give to them the commandment, the cultural mandate to be fruitful, to multiply and fill the earth. And then we watch as they fall into sin in chapter 3. And all of a sudden, we're looking in the first three chapters of the Bible thinking, oh no, it's all messed up. And right there comes the first promise of the gospel. In Genesis 3.15, remember he says, the seed of the woman, the son of the woman, the descendant of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We, We see the first gospel. We see God making a covenant with Father Abraham, not based on his own goodness or merit, but because of God's goodness and God's merit. And then we see God providing the son of the promise when Abram and his wife Sarah were old and well beyond the years of bearing children. 
When all earthly hope seemed lost, when the darkness seemed like it would win, when it looked like God wouldn't be able to fulfill his promise, God was faithful and he provided. And then we see God using Isaac's son Jacob to father the 12 tribes of Israel, when it looked like Jacob's foolishness would ruin God's plan. But God's plan is stronger than the foolishness of men. And his purposes prevail even when at times it seems like we're warring against them. When it looks like his very people are competing against him, his purposes still prevail. We see God using the nation of Egypt. You might say, Matt, no, they they were slave masters and they were harsh. That, That they were. And they also preserved and protected the nation during famine and grew them into a mighty nation. Even when it looked like God had forgotten them for hundreds of years, he was preserving them, preparing them. We see God passing over his people as the death angel visits the firstborn of all of Egypt. Passing over wherever he saw the blood of the lamb on the doorposts and the lintels. We see them leaving Egypt plundering the Egyptians without lifting a finger. We see them crossing the Red Sea when it looked like Pharaoh's army was going to overtake them, miraculously. We watch as the walls of the Red Sea come crashing down and the enemies of God are swallowed up. And then for 40 years of wandering, God provides for their daily needs. We watch as God gives the law, revealing himself in his word. We watch as God gives them the land, complete with cities they didn't build and fields that they didn't plant. We see him establish a kingship and then make a promise to David where he promises that one day, one of your descendants will sit on this throne forever. Forever. And we watch time and again as God's people demonstrate rebellion and stubbornness. And we see God's gracious provision of prophets as he sends them to call people to repentance. Turn around. You're going the wrong way. Come back to God. And we see the prophets issuing promises of a future king greater than all the kings that they've ever known. A new king who would bring about a new covenant and a new kingdom and a new people. And we watch them 400 years of silence when it looks like God is finished talking to his people. And we can almost feel the angst and the despair of his people during those four centuries of silence. And then we see a dramatic virgin birth. And we see a sinless life. And we see a ministry of declaring and revealing Christ's identity with preaching and healing and miracles and exorcisms, all the stuff we're looking at in the Gospel of Mark. We see him promising, we see him promising the disciples that they could participate in his work, and then he sends them out. We see him going to the cross, innocent, brutally executed for the sins of the world, and we watch the empty tomb three days later, just as he promised. We see him speaking to the disciples, ascending into heaven, promising to send the Spirit, and then in Acts 2, it arrives. And for 2,000 plus years, we have seen his faithfulness to build and grow and sustain his church. 
We have seen clearly the kind of God he is. He is faithful and he's just and he's righteous and he's powerful and he's wonderful. And what he says, his word is true and his promises will be fulfilled and his plans and his purposes will be upheld because he's a faithful God. He can't do anything else. And when we say that we have hope in him, our hope and our confidence today is really in his character, the kind of God he is. And the kind of God he is is revealed to us based on and in his decisions and activities for these last thousands of years. And he's never failed us yet, and he's never been unfaithful to his word. He's never violated his covenant to us. And it gives us hope that he never will. So what is then the nature of hope, the source of hope? What is the hope that we're focused on this Advent season? There's a number of things we could point to, but I'm, I'm going to narrow it down to just a few. The hope of, of a fulfilled promise. The arrival of Jesus born to a virgin, born in a manger, born in Bethlehem, was promised years ago. And the arrival of David's descendant, that shoot out of the stump of Jesse, we just looked at it in Isaiah 11, when it looked like all hope was lost, was promised years before he arrived. And the arrival of Jesus signifies an amazing new era in history. This is the fullness of time that Paul spoke about in Galatians. This is the fulfilled time that Jesus announces in Mark chapter 1. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The arrival of Christ is one of a host of statements by God to the world that he can be trusted because he's faithful to fulfill his promises. The hope of Advent is the hope of sin forgiven because that baby signaled an era of forgiveness. Remember when the angel was speaking to Joseph, the child's mother, the betrothed husband, or father, the betrothed husband of Mary. He told him he should name the child Jesus. Why? Because he would save his people from their sins. When John the Baptist sees him arriving, he announces, Behold the Lamb of God, who does what? Who takes away the sins of the world. But how? How can this horrific and lingering problem of sin be fixed? We just watched through the entire story of the Old Testament. The people of God just don't get it right. They're constantly struggling with this. How can it finally be fixed? By his arrival? Yes. And no, actually it's fixed by his death. Bound up in his arrival. He came to seek and save the lost. And he does that by offering himself as a sacrifice, the Lamb of God for our sins. Rather than punishing us for our sins and our rebellion against his rule and his care in our lives, God actually counts those sins against Jesus and in his death he covers us with his blood. And how do we know now that that was enough? How do we know today that my sins aren't too strong for him? How do we know that his blood was enough? I'm a pretty nasty guy. I do some crazy stuff. How do I know today that somebody's death 2,000 years ago was enough to cover my sin? Because I have racked up my own debt that's pretty substantial. And the way that we know it was enough was the empty tomb. He cries out, it is finished. 
And God sealed the deal by raising him from the dead, signifying to us that the price had been paid, that the account has been settled, that it was enough. Yeah, the arrival of the baby in the manger in the little town of Bethlehem instantly, because of our vantage point looking back, instantly takes us to a little hill outside Jerusalem and a rough-hewn cross on which the Lamb of God died for you and for me. Yeah, the hope of Advent is the hope of sin forgiven. It's the hope of a new kingdom. The arrival of Jesus was the arrival of the new king. The angel told Mary in Luke 1 that his name would be great, that the Lord God would give to him the throne of his father David. That's kingly talk right there. That's fulfillment of the promise right there. The angel told Mary that he, Jesus, would reign over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom would know no end. That the arrival of Jesus signified the institution of a brand new kingdom that would be eternal. He inaugurated it at his arrival. And he's coming one day to establish it in earthly form here. And until then, you and I, as members of his kingdom, are entangled in a great war. And the enemy seeks to destroy us, to steal, to kill. The kingdom of darkness seeks to overtake the kingdom of light. And yet, ironically, miraculously, for thousands of years, it hasn't been able to. Because it's an eternal kingdom, with an eternal king, established at an eternal price. So when we look back to the Advent season, we celebrate the birth of Christ. We are celebrating the arrival of a new king. And we do so with hope and wonder that how could we be part of this kingdom? That this kingdom that was began in a tiny backwoods town some 2,000 years ago in the middle of nowhere has today spread far and wide and has turned the world upside down. But that's not all. The hope of the Advent isn't just the hope of a new kingdom, but the hope of a returning king. See, there's another one coming. The birth of Jesus and all that it has meant for us cannot be overstated, and yet we also must remind ourselves, like I mentioned earlier, that the grand work of God's redemptive plan is not quite yet finished. We are looking back through almost everything. We see his faithfulness all along the way. But there is still something left. And the best is still yet to come. We are awaiting the return of Jesus Christ in his glory. Not in meekness, not in humility, but in power. We are awaiting the righteous judgment of God. And you might say, well, Matt, shouldn't that scare us? Not if we're his, it shouldn't. If we are bound up in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ, then the righteous judgment of God will actually cause us to glorify him because it is appropriate for the holy God to pour out wrath on sin. And it will, as God's people, it will encourage us and it will cause us to give him glory and to praise him. We are awaiting the righteous judgment of God. If it scares you because you're afraid you'll find yourself under the judgment of God, I've got good news for you. There's a new king who came and offers you amnesty. You don't have to be a rebel against God. You don't have to find yourself storing up wrath for yourself. You can trust Jesus for salvation for your sins. 
You can today repent of sin, turn away from it, and turn to him for forgiveness and grace. You don't have to be afraid at his coming. You can long for it with joy like those of us in Christ do. We are awaiting the final war between good and evil. When Jesus comes riding on a white horse with the armies of heaven behind him for the final defeat and destruction of Satan, the enemy of God. We are awaiting the building and establishing of a new heaven and a new earth and the full realization of our salvation in Christ's kingdom as we rule and reign with him forever. That's what's left. The reason we can be confident that it's all coming to pass is because of the enduring faithfulness of God to fulfill all of his promises to us. The arrival of King Jesus in the manger in Bethlehem causes us to look forward to his second coming. But this time, like I said, he's not coming in humility. He comes in glory and in power, declaring war. And when he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. How good is it for us who have seen him that way to do that now? To fall on our faces in worship and humility before him. All right, so what? What does all that mean for us? Well, I'm so glad you asked that. The Advent season, our hope in this season, in the midst of all this, creates a beautiful tension with us. You see, our hope rests in the fact that Christ has come. He came and he announced a kingdom. He came to seek and to save the lost. He bled, he died, was buried, and he rose again the third day. He ascended into heaven and he rules and reigns there to this day. And he promised that he'd come again. Our hope in Advent is built on the fact that Jesus has come. But that first Advent is now in the rearview mirror. And as we peer down the road in front of us, we do, we do so not with fear and anxiety, but with a confidence and a hope because he's coming again. And he's coming again to bring about the final triumph over the kingdom of Satan. He's coming again to once and for all eradicate sin, sickness, disease, illness, despair, tragedy, all of it. All the effects of the curse will be overturned. He's coming again to establish his kingdom on earth, a visible physical kingdom here where he will rule and reign. And he's coming again to occupy this forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your arrival and your coming for the fulfilled promises of God. And instantly, God, our hearts are drawn to that next coming We pray that we would be ready, that our hearts would be prepared. God, that we would long for and anticipate that second coming. When you come in glory, when you come in power, when the kingdom of God triumphs over the kingdom of darkness. Lord, I pray for those in this body who today need to be reminded that you are faithful to fulfill your promises. Maybe their lives today don't look like your faithfulness. Maybe their circumstances cause them to struggle to see your hand, your provision, your control, your guidance. Encourage them once again this morning that you are a faithful God who never leaves us or forsakes us. That you have never, never failed your promises. 
that you've never, never left us alone. God, I pray that our hearts would be encouraged today, that you are trustworthy, even when it seems hope is lost. And in that we rejoice, because this Advent season is a great reminder for us, Lord, that hope is certainly not lost. Hope is coming, and hope is here because of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.